You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Sun Mystery and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection, uh, Volume 211 in the Collected Works. This is the last lecture of this book, entitled uh, number 12, entitled Anthroposophy as an Attempt to Enchristen the World, given in Vienna, July 11, 1922. I must precede today's lecture with a few words of introduction. As you know, many of our older members are somewhat pained by recent changes in the anthroposophical movement, and I would like to briefly present their perspective on this transformation. Years ago we met in circles that were smaller than today's, but otherwise very similar. The way we talked in those circles was possible, because it was safe to assume that their members were familiar with the basic elements of anthroposophical thought and more particularly of anthroposophical feeling. I do not mean to suggest that all members of these more intimate anthroposophical circles subscribed to specific dogmatic ideas. I simply mean that they all shared a heartfelt longing to find a path into the spiritual world. When speaking about esoteric subjects, it is always essential to know that the audience consists of people who share this longing. In the early years of our movement, Even public lectures preserved this esoteric character to a certain extent, although, of course, we had to use ways of thinking and speaking that belonged to the exoteric aspect of our times. Nonetheless, our older members were able to feel that even our larger gatherings represented a continuation of the esoteric striving cultivated in smaller circles. But when these members attend our conferences now, It seems to them that we are speaking a different language than we spoke formerly, and this experience causes a certain amount of pain. Fundamental esoteric contents that were once expressed directly are now cast in the forms of modern science. I know perfectly well what many of our older members are now thinking. Formerly we could approach the insights and impulses of the spiritual world much faster, We achieved spiritual experiences much more quickly and in an esoterically more truthful way, and now we have virtually no interest in applying rigorous trains of thought in attempts to justify the esoteric contents our hearts received in this way. Many of these older members are less interested in this new approach, and they experience a certain loss because the anthroposophical movement has not preserved its previous forms of communication. This change, however, was not initiated by the anthroposophical movement itself. At least as far as my own involvement is concerned, our movement has never sought popularity by conveying its message in such a way that people hear what they already know anyway. The anthroposophical movement has never pursued this goal and has always spoken in ways true to its essential character. I have always been especially gratified to hear people say that Anthroposophy certainly cannot be accused of dishonest attempts to arouse enthusiasm by taking advantage of people's preconceived notions. 
Our manner of speaking is certainly not as accessible as it would be if we were deliberately attempting to popularize our movement. The present state of affairs is really not something we sought out. Although I have often been approached with requests to popularize my theory by rewriting it so that everyone can understand it without great effort, I have always refused to corrupt anthroposophy in this way, because I consider such effort essential to understanding what anthroposophy represents. It has never been my intention to transform the anthroposophical movement into a popular movement that wins people's hearts and minds by saying what they already know. Nonetheless, the anthroposophical movement's recent growth has been unexpectedly rapid for a movement of this sort, and our literature has met with a totally unprecedented reception for such difficult material. As a consequence, however, people who get their hands on our literature judge it from their own perspectives. Scientists compare ideas introduced by anthroposophy to the rigorous science they are accustomed to. No wonder we need to give serious thought to how we relate to science. No wonder quite a few scientifically trained friends of anthroposophy see it as their particular task to demonstrate that anthroposophy can indeed be presented for all the world to see on scientifically justifiable grounds in any area of knowledge. This is what the reality of our situation demands. When you hear scientific overtones today in contents that we formally communicated in quite different terms, this is not the fault of the anthroposophical movement. It is its destiny. This is what the world demands. We have had to present anthroposophy to the broader public, and we have been able to do so only by entering into discussion with leading personalities. For us, however, the point is not to make anthroposophy more closely resemble science. The point is to imbue science with anthroposophy. On the positive side, it has been very satisfying to welcome professionally trained friends to our midst, experts who can represent our budding anthroposophically oriented sciences to the scientific community. Nonetheless, it is true that their presence among us has resulted in an internal division in our movement that we have not yet been able to bridge. And it cannot be said that esotericism no longer lives in our more intimate circles. Anyone who takes part in our smaller gatherings will realize that our movement's esoteric current still survives. In particular, anyone who comes to Dornach will see how much new intellectual and esoteric wealth has been added to the old. Nonetheless, a cleft has developed between anthroposophy as it is heard in public and anthroposophy as it is cultivated in more intimate esoteric circles. To date we have been unable to bridge this gap owing to shortages of time and manpower. On the one hand, we must continue to devote ourselves to esoteric training. On the other hand, our younger members in particular are very actively developing the anthroposophical worldview in all its social and practical applications. It is certainly both necessary and possible to bridge the gap between our esoteric efforts and the exoteric face of anthroposophy as it appears in our public conferences. This gap must be filled, and each of us must feel that if we simply had the necessary time and energy to do this work within our movement, 
it would indeed be possible to build a bridge between the purity of what we hear spoken out of the spiritual world and what we teach in harmony with exoteric science. This should give you a picture how I myself see the situation surrounding the current work of our anthroposophical movement. I might say that no outward appearances, excuse me, I might say to outward appearances this movement has outgrown us in a certain respect, but I remain hopeful that more and more friends will appear among us who are able to bridge the gap. The purpose of these introductory remarks was to point out that we must use very different forms to convey esoteric contents and to communicate with the broader public in the context of contemporary culture. Directly communicated esoteric content would not speak to the hearts of our contemporaries who come to our movement as complete newcomers. Without seeking popularity, those of us who have been part of this movement for decades must be concerned about making anthroposophy accessible to all who choose to hear about it. This is something that we should all inscribe in our hearts because any member can help to make it possible. As we make the transition today from exoteric to esoteric content, I would like to address an issue that relates to our other larger gatherings, namely what exoteric science, physics, chemistry, biology and even psychology could become if imbued with anthroposophy. This is the only way that the bridge between scientific knowledge and religious activity can be bridged. When we allow ourselves to be inundated with modern science, it is true that we lose a certain connection to the spirit weaving and surging through the cosmos. Nonetheless, we must also look at life's material forms. Spirit is present in all material manifestations of our life, which cannot persist without our participation in the spirit. Today we must understand that this spirit does not merely attempt to address the cosmos out of human longing. It attempts to flow into our earthly world from a different world. We must understand that the windows between our world and this other world have been opened, not by us alone, but also by the spiritual world that surrounds us. This was not the case in the 19th century, before a number of superhuman extraterrestrial spiritual powers decided to allow a wave of spiritual life to flow into earthly life. When we consider the history of our times, we must realize that human beings are now newly able to receive the spiritual world if they so desire. Consequently, cultivating the spirit on earth is now a super-earthly task, an intrinsic part of the life of the spiritual world itself. Now that human beings are again beginning to sense a dim longing to access the spirit, which was often not the case as recently as the last third of the nineteenth century, this longing, whenever it is truly willed, is being met by revelations from spiritual worlds. This sense of longing is the appropriate basic mood in which to approach anthroposophical activity. This new accessibility of the spiritual world means that humankind now faces an important decision that cuts to the heart of every individual. For centuries, human beings have been developing their intellect, which has, gradually, led us away from spirituality. 
although intellect is spirit, in fact the very purest spirit, it no longer has a spiritual content. Instead it has chosen the world of outer nature as its contents. In other words, the intellect is spirit, but fills itself with something that cannot manifest as spirit. This is the great modern tragedy of the cosmos. In moments of introspection, we human beings must acknowledge that although intellectual activity is spiritual activity, our intellect is powerless to receive spirit directly. Instead, we fill our spirit with natural material existence. This state of affairs is fragmenting modern human souls and turning them into a wasteland. Although we may not want to admit it, the spiritual regions of the human soul are becoming fragmented and desolate. This is the fundamental evil and the underlying tragedy of our time. In our usual antiposophical terminology, the spiritual powers that prevail in all natural existence and enter us when it fills our spirit are called the Aramonic forces. Our intellect, as it has developed over the past few centuries, is exposed to a grave risk of falling prey to Aramonic forces. As long as it still preserved the legacy of ancient spirituality, these Aramonic forces did not wield as much power over human beings as they do today. To all appearances, the natural world lies spread out around us, but this is an illusion. In reality, Araman lives in this natural world. When we perceive nature, we believe that it is governed purely by neutral natural laws, but in fact we are unwittingly taking in Aramanic spiritual powers that have set themselves a specific task within the existence and evolution of the cosmos as a whole. When we talk about the task of spiritual powers such as these, it is easy to wonder why the divine governance of the cosmos permits them to intervene. In response, we must emphasize that although everything earthly can be understood with ordinary human reason, anything of a spiritual, scientific, earth-transcending character can be understood only through direct spiritual perception. These adversary forces exist, but how they relate to the divine spiritual powers that foster human development is something that we human beings will be able to understand only much later in our evolution, if ever. In fact, these adversary forces may always elude human understanding, because understanding them requires the application of superhuman forces. All we can say is that these powers do exist, and they reveal themselves to spiritual perception. As I described in title Esoteric Science, the task of these Aramonic powers is to prevent the earth from evolving as intended by the divine spiritual powers that have been involved with human souls from the very beginning of time. In Esoteric Science I describe the future evolution of our earth as the Jupiter and Venus stages. The Aramonic powers are attempting to prevent this future development. They want the earth to harden and freeze as it is. They want the human race to become trapped in exclusively earthly materiality and live on in the future of the cosmos as a dead image of its own past. <clears throat> These powers have specific cosmic goals.
and binding human beings to the earth is certainly one of them. If the Aramonic powers were victorious, the earth would never achieve its spiritual goal. Human beings would be estranged from their origins and from the powers that set human evolution in motion. The human body would assume an outer form still fully adapted to earthly life, but all human potential to transcend the earthly would be suppressed. As long as our intellect remained rooted in spirit through an ancient legacy, as it was in the previous three or four centuries, the Aramonic powers could not approach human beings. Since the beginning of the twentieth century, however, the situation has changed. Ancient Indian wisdom, divining the beginning of a new age, set the end of the Dark Age, Kali Yuga, at the end of the nineteenth century. The dawning of the new age means that from the beginning of the twentieth century onward, human hearts need no longer cling to their old legacy, but can truly absorb new, pure light into our earthly life. But this spiritual light will elude human beings unless we make a deliberate effort to receive it. As long as the old legacy prevailed, human intellect was not as damaging as it can be today. In recent times, our understanding of the solid, liquid, gaseous, and etheric elements of the natural world has evolved. When we look at the earth and its elements, they appear as if devoid of spirit. But when we consider hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and so forth, and the physical laws that govern them, we give the Aramonic powers a point of attack in the context of cosmic evolution. Because we pay no attention to the spirit around us, Araman can creep inside us without our knowledge and usurp that spirit. This is why we must learn about the spirit around us. It is no longer acceptable to talk about solid matter only in terms of chem- chemical elements such as sodium and calcium. We must also be aware of the spiritual element associated with everything that is solid or earthly in character. We must realize that the solid earthly matter we encounter in the outer world is associated with spirit, specifically with a spirit that has a unique tendency to manifest as a multiplicity. Wherever physical vision sees solid matter, spiritual perception also sees many different spiritual beings. Ancient instinctive wisdom called these beings gnomes and the like. There is no need to retain these antiquated names, however, if people are shocked by them. We can speak about these beings in more familiar terms. The point is that we must pay attention to the spirit that manifests in every clump of solid matter. When we gather in more esoteric circles, as we are doing today, we can be more direct. Today, whenever human beings equipped with spiritual perception encounter a clump of earth, They see spiritual beings springing forth from it. These beings are not physically incarnated, so we cannot see them with physical eyes. But they can be perceived with spiritual sight. They are so many and so varied that the smallest clump of solid matter yields countless numbers of them. They consist almost entirely of the active substance of human reason. In other words, these beings are crafty, clever, and excessively wise. We are surrounded by their living spiritual cleverness, by their spiritual understanding, 
which is much more rapid than our own intellectual rationality. In the solid, earthly element, intellect becomes substance-like. Until we know how these spiritual beings of the solid, earthly element work together, there can be no true chemistry. Anthroposophy can understand the chemistry we have today, but we will grasp the full truth only when we discover the object of supersensible perception, the spiritual element in everything earthly. We must have the will to abandon even the solidest pillars of human deliberation. Whenever we confront the earthly element in any way that involves counting, one, two, three, four, we are accustomed to seeing four items when we have counted to four. But the spiritual beings that free themselves from solid matter are so eager to diversify that we may find that three or four become seven as soon as we start to count. Counting is completely useless in this situation. In our atomistic world, objects can be counted, but the real world, where everything is alive, aims for much greater diversity. We are forced to realize that a higher intelligence scoffs at our counting. Although it is important to remain level-headed in our intellectual approach, we must openly confront what reality presents. On the other hand, many people believe excuse me, on the other hand, many people will say that a reality that confronts us with uncountable beings will make us go crazy. Before entering this spiritual world, therefore, it is extremely important to make sure that we are completely level-headed and capable of assessing earthly circumstances objectively. <clears throat> we all know that our waking life becomes disordered when we do not sleep properly. Given that what we experience here on earth is like sleep compared with the reality we encounter on entering the spiritual world, it makes sense that individuals who are not fully grounded on earth, people who succumb to spiritualist fantasies, for example, will carry pathological elements with them into the spiritual world. They will move around the spiritual world with the nervousness of someone waking from a pathological sleep. This can be prevented, however, by the striving for harmony that underlies all our anthroposophical activity. The anthroposophical movement can result in greater health and healing for individuals, but it does not result in alienation from the fullness of human life between birth and death. Moving on to the fluid element, we find spiritual beings of a different type. While the elemental beings of solid matter resemble our human reason, the elemental beings that inhabit the fluid element more closely resemble our feeling. With our emotions and perceptions we stand outside things. That beautiful tree is over there, but I am standing here, separate from it, as I allow it to flow into me. The elemental beings of the fluid element flow through the tree in its very sap, and their sensations flow into every leaf from the inside. They experience red and blue not from outside, but from within. As a result, their sensations are much more intense than ours, just as the understanding of the elemental beings of solid matter is much more intense than our human understanding. Similarly, the airy element contains a number of elemental beings. 
The more these beings approach this element, however, the more they lose their longing for diversity. We get the feeling that the concept of number becomes increasingly less applicable as we move up into the airy element, where elemental beings increasingly strive for unity. Nonetheless, the elemental beings of the air manifest in great diversity, similar to that found in human will. The elemental beings of solid matter are inwardly related to human intelligence, the beings of the fluid element to human feeling, and the beings of the airy element to human will. The Catholic Church construes the worship of saints in its own particular way, of course, but the underlying impulse is more profound. We, however, must learn not only to find the surviving spirits of revered human beings, but also to seek the spirit in everything around us, just as we seek the natural world with our physical senses. When we do this, we make our way upward to the light that streams toward us and the life that pulses through the cosmos. We make our way upward toward the beings that strive for unity and seduce human beings to perceive the spirit in the cosmos as unitary. Monotheism grew out of the etheric world's revelation to earthly human beings. But when we make our way up to these beings of light, these elemental beings of the ether, we find ourselves in a different outer world, which consists not only of physical light, but also of the spirit that streams down to us in every ray of sunlight. Here we discover beings similar to those found in the earthly elements. Instead of attempting to bind us to the earth as the Aramonic powers do, these beings of the etheric element want to prevent us from fully understanding the earthly element. They want to arrest human evolution and prevent the earth from achieving its ultimate goal. The Aramonic beings want the earth to evolve to a point that serves their purposes. In contrast, these other beings are intent on holding the earth back at earlier stages of development, preventing it from realizing its full potential. The elemental powers of the ether have decided to enter into alliance with Lucifer. This is the second such decision that confronts us when we look up into higher spheres. Araman and his forces gain access to human beings when we shut ourselves off from perceiving and understanding the spirit. Lucifer, along with the powers that live in the ether, moves into us when we neglect the right sort of inner absorption. In short, we are now confronted with adversarial forces both from above and from below. This whole choir of beings that surrounds us in stones, plants, animals, and physical human bodies can either reveal itself to us if we willingly receive the Spirit or remain inaccessible to our consciousness. If we choose to know nothing of the spiritual world, this whole choir succumbs to the Aramonic powers. Araman forms an alliance with the spirits of nature. The preeminent decision in the spiritual world today is to forge an alliance between the Aramonic forces and the forces of nature. The only way to prevent this alliance is for human beings to learn to perceive the spiritual world and become as familiar with nature spirits as we are now familiar with the chemical elements of oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, calcium, sodium, and so forth. 
to our scientific understanding of the sense-perceptible physical world, we must add a science of the spirit, and we must be absolutely serious about it. We cannot approach the spirit through mere pantheistic talk. We must avoid the lack of courage that prevents people from talking about concrete spiritual beings. What would have happened in human evolution if the people of the Old Testament and others had adhered to the pantheistic view of a vague universal spirit and had not dared to talk about individual spiritual beings? Through its worship of saints, the Catholic Church has forged a transition on behalf of humankind. In this case, the object of devotion is the human soul spiritual element that survives in the spiritual world. The powers that live in warmth, ebbing and flowing in the alternation between summer and winter, also live in our blood, which pervades our bodies with warmth. These powers mediate between the luciferic and aramonic elements. In the outer world, these mediating forces ebb and flow regularly and rhythmically, like our blood circulation, not irregularly as warmth does in meteorology. In the objective ebb and flow of warmth in our circulation, we are also enveloped by the ebb and flow not only of these elemental spirits, but also of the entire elemental world. We can extract ourselves only by finding our way into the spiritual world in full consciousness, which is possible only if we are not afraid to look that world squarely in the face. At this point, however, we encounter an obstacle to the continued existence of our anthroposophical movement. Let me illustrate what I mean with one of many possible concrete examples. Today what we as anthroposophists have to say about the field of medicine, for example, must tie in with exoteric medicine. This is what the world demands of us. We must talk about the etiology of specific diseases in relationship to outer material forces of nature, for example how rickets relates to the air around us. We must use materialistic statistical methods to quantify how many people with rickets live in places with northern or southern exposures. When we do this, we, we may not be at all conscious of the element with which we are getting involved. Let us consider how the same statistical methods apply to the issue of insurance. In outer physical reality, life insurance is possible only because individual life expectancies can be calculated, but of course we realize that actuarial tables cannot predict how long any individual will live. It is quite possible for reality to make a mockery of the statistics. Nonetheless, anthroposophical scientists must use statistics so that their descriptions of scientific phenomena are at least outwardly in harmony with conventional science. This is entirely appropriate, because nowadays we must speak in terms that resonate with natural science. Having determined that rickets occurs when the forces of the lower human body develop in the absence of forces of light, when the patient lives in a dark basement, for example, we must also take into account the choices of soul-spiritual human beings who descend from a spiritual world to live in specific physical bodies. Taking on a specific body is not arbitrary. When we descend to earth, we incarnate 
into a particular ethnic group, in a particular family, because we are attracted to the individual forces that prevail among human beings in a specific place. This attraction works right into the details of the life a child will experience, living in a room with a northern or southern exposure, for example. Under certain circumstances, a soul may actively choose to develop in darkness. The presence or absence of light and air is not the only factor we must consider. We must also consider the being of spirit and soul and its attraction to a particular milieu. We must question whether we can attempt to cure rickets entirely on the basis of our assumptions about and understanding of the physical world. In fact, we cannot. We must realize that if medication does nothing more than make the patient physically healthy, his or her destiny, the reason for choosing to live in a world with inadequate light, is forced down into the soul's unconscious depths. We will be able to establish a holistic science of medicine only if we also target this suppressed unconscious factor, that is, if we enable patients to become conscious of what they must do to fulfill their destiny. We must be able to consider the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. The tragedy of the present moment in the life of the anthroposophical movement is that the multiple perspectives we must consider make it possible for critics to discover contradiction after contradiction within our movement. As a result, it is easy to accuse us of inconsistency. This inconsistency is resolved, however, when the entire truth of the matter is seen. <clears throat> Wherever people who work within the anthroposophical movement link to the material element, they also discover spiritual tasks. Our physicians must become different people. They must view the world in a different spirit. Although inundated with exoteric science, they must avoid increasingly assuming its character simply out of habit. Although they must reach compromises with exoteric science, they must also rise above it. This is something we can and must realize when we have spent a certain amount of time in the anthroposophical movement. We face many other similar difficulties. The point is not to shed light on these difficulties from a critical perspective, but to feel our way into them and learn to understand them so thoroughly that they are replaced with complete harmony. In real life, that is how we must work together in all our fields of activity. When a Waldorf school teacher talks to the physician from the Clinical Therapeutic Institute, their conversation is different from a conversation between any two individuals outside our movement. Our Waldorf teachers speak from the perspective of psychological hygiene. They give voice to what we must do to become healers for our children. This becomes tremendously illuminating when it resonates in the mind and soul of someone who works in the Clinical Therapeutic Institute. <clears throat> the reverse is also true. When we learn in the Clinical Therapeutic Institute, excuse me, what we learn in the Clinical Therapeutic Institute must influence the activity of our Waldorf school teachers. We must work toward the harmony demanded by matters themselves. We must avoid the disharmony that develops when individuals' activities are not coordinated. Anthroposophy will not be able to develop to serve humankind 
if individuals working within our movement cannot come together. As such, anthroposophy demands human fraternity, fellowship in the most profound depths of human souls. Outside our movement, fellowship may be a moral imperative. Within our movement, it is essential to the growth of anthroposophy. Anthroposophy can grow and thrive only in the fertile ground of practical fellowship, where each individual offers others whatever he or she has and can do. This fellowship is also the foundation of other new insights. It is time to take seriously the words of a professor of theology in Basel, who wrote a book that heavily influenced his friend Nietzsche. The professor was Franz Overbeck, and the book was titled On the Christianity of Theology. Overbeck was neither an anthroposophist nor an atheist. He was employed by the university to teach theology. The premise of his book is that although individuals often still behave in a Christian manner, our theology as such is no longer Christian. In other words, theology especially self-professed liberal theology, has lost the true concept of the Christ. The person who arrived at this conclusion was not some heretical anthroposophist, but a teacher and theologian of the Christian Church. This is one point I wanted to make. The other is something you already know well, not from tradition, but from true insight, namely the anthroposophical perspective on the mystery of Golgotha. You can read a great deal about it in various lecture cycles of mine, but what I want to emphasize today is this. Modern liberal theologians pay little attention to the cosmic Christ being who passed through the mystery of Golgotha and later communicated with initiates and disciples. How little attention they pay to the resurrected Christ who remained visible to his initiated disciples. Those who approach anthroposophy, however, gradually achieve a living view of the mystery of Golgotha and learn what the Christ communicated to his initiated disciples after his resurrection. As we find our way into this mystery, the spiritual world around us becomes more and more tangible because the mystery of Golgotha can be understood only in spiritual terms. For most people, the mystery of Golgotha is very difficult to understand because they approach it in materialistic terms. A great deal of what the Christ himself imparted to his initiated disciples after his resurrection survived among the early church fathers. <clears throat> Today I will single out only one aspect of this legacy. You see, prior to the mystery of Golgotha, humankind possessed a certain kind of primeval wisdom. When we look back on the early stages of the earth's development, we find human beings who were primitive, but not at all animal-like, or at least only in their outward appearance. These primitive humans received primeval wisdom from superhuman divine spiritual beings. This wisdom was no illusion, it really existed. Early humans were filled with wisdom not ignorance, but this wisdom which we admire so greatly when we rediscover it consciously on the basis of anthroposophy. Let me read that again. <clears throat> Early humans were filled with wisdom, not ignorance, but this wisdom which we admire so greatly when we rediscover it consciously on the basis of anthroposophy was then quite dreamlike. People experienced it in images that were not associated with a strong sense of self. At the beginning of the earth stage of evolution, 
a tremendously profound archetypal wisdom prevailed among outwardly animal-like human beings who received this wisdom from divine spiritual beings and became conscious of it only in images. Apropos animal-like, let me note in passing that when we finally achieve a holistic view of the natural world in all its complexity, we will judge animals differently than we do today. For example, when we look at a coiled snake lying as if paralyzed while digesting its prey, we will see an expansive inner life like a cosmic dream, and we will realize that even the snake's digestive abilities are provided by the world of images, by the cosmos itself. We will also discover the spirit within the Aramonic principle. <clears throat> but let us get back to the primeval wisdom of early humans. Because their wisdom was dreamlike in character, these people did not experience death to the extent that we do today with our emphasis on exoteric perception. Although our early earthly forebears did not see themselves and each other as animals, there was something animal-like in their relationship to death. They did not experience death in the depth of their souls as their descendants would do. Although these people lived and then ceased living, they remained virtually untouched by life's end because they were illumined by the spirit that worked through their primeval wisdom during life. Because they never felt totally separated from the spirit, death was not an especially meaningful event. They experienced it only as the casting off of the body, similar to the sloughing off of a snake's skin. They did not experience death with our degree of clarity. To look at death as modern humanity does would have required spiritual forces that those early humans did not possess. In ancient times, before the mystery of Golgotha, death emerged only gradually as the riddle that now confronts human beings. Let us imagine for a moment that the mystery of Golgotha had not happened. Without it, the ancient wisdom would have become increasingly unconscious as humankind's evolution continued. Human beings left with exclusively exoteric perception would have been inconsolable in the face of death and its terrible consequences. As the millennium of the mystery of Golgotha approached, human souls increasingly faced the possibility of their own deaths. But as the risen Christ told his initiated disciples, Humans received their primeval wisdom from divine spiritual beings at a time when the gods themselves were not familiar with death. Because the divine worlds knew only metamorphosis, not death, ancient wisdom supplied no perspective on death and overcoming it. <clears throat> the resurrected Christ told his disciples that those loyal to God the Father had sent him to earth to live in a physical body and experience death an impossibility in the world of the gods. He told them that he had come down to earth so that the gods could experience death and so that all human beings who truly understand Christianity can learn to understand the Spirit's victory over earthly death. These teachings of the resurrected Christ survived for four centuries until exoteric views of Christianity triumphed. The Christ called out to humankind to understand death as the freeing of spirituality from the human body when its time in the earthly world is over. Through the mystery of Golgotha, however, the gods themselves also gained this understanding. 
Thus the erection of the cross on Golgotha was also a cosmic event. One of the most important cosmic events was actually enacted on earth. The cross not only rose up from the earth but also descended to it. An agreement forged by the gods was implemented on earth for human beings to behold. This is how the true Christ could be seen, but this view is lost to modern theology. If you read Harnack, for example, you could simply cross out the name Christ wherever it occurs and replace it with the generic God, because Harnack does not talk about the living, risen Christ and fails to recognize the super-earthly significance of the mystery of Golgotha. When we embrace this significance, we become increasingly comfortable with the idea that spirituality needs death, that human beings would fail to achieve their evolutionary goals if they did not repeatedly pass through the portal of death. Through the mystery of Golgotha, the beginnings of an understanding of human death entered all future earthly evolution. We must go still further, however. There is something else we must understand. Today we are surrounded by dead nature, and we congratulate ourselves heartily when we understand it. We attempt to understand not only minerals, but also plants and even animals in terms of their chemistry. In other words, we see only the dead element in everything. The ideal of our modern way of thinking is to replace life with dead mechanics and chemistry. We like to imagine that a plant develops tiny little processes that, when put together, merge into what we call life. This is not what happens. There is real life inside that plant. We must realize that we see death all around us because our perception is completely death-oriented. Christianity, which frees us from the constraints of death, tells us that souls who do not understand the resurrection, the fact that the Christ lives, are dead souls. We must also understand that if we relate only to dead matter, we ourselves become dead and aramonic. But if we have sufficient courage and sufficient love for all the beings around us to relate to them directly, not to our dead ideas about them, we discover the Christ in everything and victorious spirit everywhere. When this happens, we may need to speak in ways that seem paradoxical to our contemporaries. We may need to speak about the individual spiritual beings that live in the solid and fluid elements and so forth. As long as we avoid talking about these beings, we are talking about a dead science that is not imbued with the Christ. To speak about them is to speak in a truly Christian sense. We must imbue all of our scientific activity with the Christ. More than that, we must also bring the Christ into all of our social efforts, all of our knowledge, in short, into all aspects of our life. The mystery of Golgotha will truly bear fruit only through human strength, human efforts, and human love for each other. In this sense, anthroposophy in all its details strives to imbue the world with the Christ. We raise the sign of the Christ over all of our efforts. If we look out over the natural world and find no God in nature, that can be due only to a pathological condition within ourselves. A contemplative approach to nature reveals God everywhere. Nature itself tells us, ex deo natsimur. Inner inability 
to realize that we are born out of God is an illness. In the course of our earthly life, however, we must find the Christ through our own soul forces so that we may die properly, because the Christ alone allows modern humanity to experience life in death. It is simply a matter of human destiny whether we are able to find and receive the Christ, to learn to understand the mystery of Golgotha, and to say in our inmost being, in Christo morimor. It is an illness to be unable to come to God the Father, and a miserable fate to be unable to come to God the Son. The consequence is also a weakness of spirit, however, because if we imbue ourselves with understanding and love for the Father God and the Christ, Something in us awakens into living spirituality, in spite of death and the deadness of nature. Through the power of the Father God and the power of the Christ we realize that we are reborn in the Holy Spirit, per spiritum sanctum revivissimus. As a result of clear insight, not of nebulous aspiration, we know, ex Deo nasimur, we are born out of God, in Christo morimur, we die in Christ. Per spiritum sanctum revivissimus. We will reawaken in the Spirit self through the Holy Spirit. End of lecture 12, and that is the end of the collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Sun Mystery and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection Exoteric and Esoteric Christianity, Volume 211 in the Collected Works.